0: Hey everyone, I'm Eric Peckham, and this is the Monetizing Media Podcast. My focus is breaking down business opportunities across media, entertainment, and gaming with the savviest executives, entrepreneurs, and investors in the industry. This episode is part of my biz series in which CEOs and other operational executives share tactical insights on business models, pricing, user retention, and other elements of their business strategy. Today, we're doing a case study on Axios, a leading politics and business news company in the U.S., That was founded five years ago by top executives from Politico. The company has raised around $60 million for its mission to deliver insights with brevity for busy professionals. From the start, Axios has prioritized newsletters as the centerpiece of its editorial strategy, with a mix of daily and weekly newsletters covering different industries and policy areas. They also had a political interview show on HBO. My guest to talk about the company's audience development strategy is Neil Rothschild, Director of Audience and Growth at Axios. Hey, Neil, welcome to the Monetizing Media Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Eric. Uh, excited
0: to be on. Looking forward to walking through some of the ins and outs here of uh, how Axios has grown and the strategy you guys have in, in um, both top of funnel attracting you know, more eyeballs and, and readers um, to the site and to the newsletters, but then the whole process there of converting and retaining those readers. Uh, yeah, Axios has had um, an incredible journey in a relatively short time the last few years, um, growing to be a, such a prominent uh, publication across um, politics and, and business in the US.
1: Yeah, this has uh, been a fun ride. I've been at Axios now for just over five years. I joined uh, two weeks before we launched in uh, 2017. So uh, happy to speak to kind of Uh, how we got to this point and even
0: some about uh the early days yeah excellent Uh, maybe before we jump in more specifically on axios um tell me a little bit more about how you ended up um i mean at axios but also in this this work of focusing on audience audience development and and you know growth for news organizations
1: yeah so i have probably a pretty unconventional story uh i did a podcast um well, kind of to backtrack, I've been very interested in kind of journalism as a kid. Both of my parents were journalists. I wrote for the school newspaper. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I kind of wanted to pursue a career more on the business side of things just because I was like, hey, this journalism thing seems like it's dying and not a lot of good jobs there. A lot of other stuff pays a lot better. So I majored in econ, uh, but kind of like through my internships, I always kind of wasn't interested in some of the other stuff, whether it was kind of commercial finance or real estate uh, that I was in and always kind of felt myself drawn back to media. Uh, and so um, I, I taught abroad for a year after college. And when I came back, I had an idea to start a News Digest podcast, uh, just like, hey, when I was walking to school to teach in Romania, 30 minutes each way, I did not have a way to catch up on the news uh, for what was going on in the US um, through audio, because I was walking. So that was the way to do it. So uh, for a year, um, I kind of did just like a news digest podcast. It's called Rooster. If you want to look it up in your uh, podcast directories, 35 news items in six minutes, just pretty rapid fire across business, politics, sports, pop culture. So hard news, but also the fun stuff. And doing that kind of helped. Me realized just like how much I do love media, but not just kind of the journalist side of being a media in media, but the strategic side. How are news consumers' uh, behaviors evolving? How do people get the news? What are the platforms? What are the channels that people get informed? And um, so after my year of doing a podcast, which I grew a modest listenership, but generated zero dollars. In revenue, um, I was able to get a job at Axios just as it was starting. Um, My job then was social media manager, which was just kind of a way into the door to uh, have a way to um, be working in a news organization. But, uh, you know, that role helped me kind of learn the the physics of the internet, how people react to certain stories, the way different headlines can take off, how to monitor different platforms, Um, and so, yeah, that's how I um, kind of got to this point.
0: Yeah. And, and it seems like you do still have a little bit of a hand in the editorial side, if I'm not correct. I, I know in um, Sarah Fisher's weekly media industry newsletter uh, through Axios, I've, I've seen you mentioned a few times as, as co-writing things with her.
1: Yeah, I always like to kind of have one foot on each side. I don't like to stay too far away from editorial, because then I feel like I kind of lose my touch about, like, what is actually going on in the world? What are the trends that are unfolding and kind of um, dictating, like, what people are paying attention to, and what's hot, and what are the topics uh, that are really taking off? Uh, And at the same time, um, I also don't want to become, like, Fully a journalist, just because I am so interested in the business of media and the competitive landscape and the ecosystem. Um, so I try as much as possible, and uh, I'm lucky that my role at Axios allows me to kind of be able to do both.
0: Yeah, incredible. Um, well, let's let's dig in more on Axios specifically and and um, the work you're focused on now. So um, thinking about uh, Axios's audience, um, I did a quick check. A minute ago on on similar web, it said at least in the last month, about 11 million monthly uniques. Um, obviously things fluctuate, and that's one outside source. Um, but but in terms of the funnel of, of attracting that attention and um, converting people, um, Axios's audience development funnel, correct me if I'm wrong. Generally speaking at the top of funnel, we have a lot of traffic probably from social media. Um, some from news aggregators, yeah, you know, some search, but by and large, um, yeah, you know, almost all organic traffic from those sorts of sources, and a little bit of paid acquisition as well. And and for you guys, the primary goal once someone on is on site seems to be converting them to become subscribers to the free newsletters. Is that? Yep,
1: exactly. Uh, newsletter subscribers are our most loyal.
0: Uh, readers, our most engaged
1: readers, uh, if you have a daily newsletter, we are able to land in your inbox every single day, uh, just sign up and we're there and we can kind of build that relationship uh, until the end of time, where that becomes a lot harder on the web to uh, What the web does offer obviously is you can reach a much greater amount of people and try to bring them into your ecosystem but ultimately we are trying to get these people to you know understand axios either you like the format you like the bullet points and the bolding or you like sarah fisher or jonathan swan uh or you just kind of like our um sensibility and our kind of objective way of treating the news and you'll subscribe to us that way but um that is like the main lever that we're trying to uh, get people to become email subscribers.
0: Yeah. And, and then I sh- should mention you guys have in the last few weeks launched uh, premium newsletters, paid newsletters, um, specific to different industries like healthcare. I think there's a fintech one. Um, and those are each um, kind of premium business priced subscriptions, about $600 a year, if I'm correct.
1: Yeah, that's correct. I think from the early days of Axios, our CEO, Jim BandeHei, kind of like throughout, even before Axios had launched, yeah, we'll probably have a $10,000 subscription product just because like that kind of seemed like an obvious revenue line um, for media. So it's almost an upset in some ways that it, it has taken until five years in uh, that Axios finally has a paid subscription product.
0: Yeah, I, there's been a lot of speculation in media about... What sort of subscriptions or or new monetization Axios will launch? Obviously, the the kind of heritage of the Axios uh, founders being the founders of Politico before, and Politico's model is is kind of free news with then those sorts of you know ten thousand dollar a year really expensive um, kind of enterprise focused subscriptions that were specific to you know covering policy that that large companies affected by small details in, in law would care about and lobbyists would care about, et cetera. And so they had that model. And then, you know, now, um, you know, this idea of whether there'd be that sort of high price subscription or what you guys have decided to go with, um, you know, is, is more kind of individual subscribers, but by and large business people who can probably expense that as well.
1: Yep, yeah, exactly. And uh, probably I would say the subscription uh, business would have come sooner, but we had a couple of other ideas that were a little more novel and a little more kind of outside of the traditional bubble. We have uh, Axios HQ, which is our, our SaaS product, our internal communications, right like Axios. Um, we'll like, try to get you to streamline your communications internally. So we have that product going and then Axios Local, where we're kind of building out our network of daily newsletters in local cities kind of both came, like, not as part of, uh, like, a five-year plan. We're going to roll out these products, but very serendipitously, like, hey, like, here's an opportunity we've identified. Let's try to run at this. And then so, uh, like, we have those two in addition to kind of the core Axios media and now uh, Axios Pro as well.
0: Yeah. Um, As someone who was there from before Axios launched publicly um, and, and now being there today still... Were there specific inflection points in terms of a surge in audience um, that you saw happen that took things to the next level?
1: Yeah. So we've had a few periods, like when we launched, you know, not all media companies kind of are going to get uh, the benefit of like being able to launch with a huge splash. But uh, on the day Axios launched, uh, we had an interview in Trump Tower with then president elect Donald Trump who was, I think, about two weeks away from, or maybe a week away from coming into office. So we were, we were able to uh, launch with that, which uh, kind of gave us a lot of traction. Jonathan Swan and Mike Allen's reporting during the Trump years. Uh, for a while there, we had a team of about two political reporters, and we're still able to land big stories. And it was kind of John, Jonathan Swan, Maggie Haberman, Josh Dawsey, A couple others who were landing some of the biggest scoops from the White House. So the fact that the whole kind of country was addicted to Trump content and couldn't get enough and like couldn't take their eyes off this circus, um, like kind of was a big reason we were responsible or kind of a big um, reason responsible for kind of Axios's profile being raised just within the first uh, year or two uh, of our existence. And then probably our biggest. Um, just like single audience event we've ever had was uh, for our HBO show Axios on HBO when uh, Swan interviewed Trump um, I think August 2020 Uh, so in the middle of COVID shortly before the 2020 election uh, and that became kind of a viral interview with thousands of memes being made about Jonathan Swan's facial expressions and reaction to Trump but like that interview set off record-breaking traffic, record-breaking spike in subscriptions, record-breaking spike in podcast downloads, app downloads, every metric you can think of um, was kind of triggered by how viral that interview went. And the I think we're north of 100 million uh, video views um, as far as clips that came out of that interview. So that was just a massive seismic event. And so most people I talk to now um, that are kind of uninitiated with Axios or um, the media political uh, ecosystem in general. Just kind of bring up the Jonathan Swan Trump interview and oh yeah, I know I know you from that.
0: Yeah, it, knowing obviously that that an interview like that would be very high profile, create a surge of of traffic to the site. Um, were there specific things you guys did um, to prepare for that to, to optimize for capturing more of those? Um, visitors to convert to newsletters or otherwise lock them in to be loyal and and end up coming back and staying with the site.
1: Yeah. So it's kind of like you want, when you have that surge of traffic, you want to be able to capture everyone and make everyone a subscriber, but you also want to like align it pretty closely with the content uh, that it's coming from. Um, Someone coming in from a Jonathan Swan interview uh probably not going to be interested to sign up for our daily like healthcare or business newsletter so you we really wanted to kind of align it around that product mm-hmm. where uh, a lot of people watching that interview were probably like hey this Jonathan Swan guy is a uh, good reporter i kind of want to read more of him and so uh we were funnelling people towards the Axios Sneak Peek newsletter which used to be written kind of solely by Swan and is now kind of from our politics team more broadly. Um, but it was kind of trying to direct people to that newsletter and explicitly associated with that, uh, to, to read Jonathan Swan weekly, sign up for the sneak peek newsletter. So you want to be able to have the reader make that connection that, oh yeah, I do like this guy. I do want more of him, um, and send them that way. Um, you know, so we try to do that wherever possible is try to give that you want more of this then sign up for that and have that be a connection that the reader actually believes and makes sense to them.
0: Yeah. Gotcha. I I would have to imagine that, um, as a category, the, the visitors who come through a specific kind of press moment like that, um, and rush into the site are probably much weaker audience members in terms of, um, certainly their conversion rate, but even in terms of like, once you get them into a newsletter, um, their open rate um you know their their likeliness to churn being higher is that true
1: yeah it's true because like that sort of event is more likely to break through to a casual reader yeah probably. who's not like oh i do need a daily politics newsletter to read each day and that's going to be my habit yeah. um so like yeah in in many ways it's not going to be a one-to-one match with all the readers that are coming through but some percent of them uh like, even a good percent, uh, I don't know the exact numbers, will stay with us um, for that. And so we'll take whoever we can get out of it, knowing full well that, hey, like, a good amount of these people uh, coming in aren't going to be the ideal subscriber. But uh, I think we also differentiate, um, like, a distinction we make is, like, what's a high intent reader versus a low intent reader? Um if you're kind of if you see an axios headline on google facebook a news aggregator app like apple news and smart news uh that headline may be very undifferentiated where an axios article looks the same as a bloomberg article looks the same as a politico article a vox article where the reader does kind of just doesn't make a connection. There's a headline I wanted to read. I'll click through to read a little more, but they're not really engaging with the brand. Where if you have kind of a moment like that Trump interview, you have a few cues to help readers make that connection. You have the guy, Jonathan Swan, the reporter with the Australian accent. You have the way that Axios on HBO is filmed, which is kind of like a shaky cam, Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of different than the way most news interviews are shot. Um, So there's kind of a few trademarks of the Axios brand that we're trying to, even though we're leveraging these platforms, we're trying to get readers to make an association beyond just the transactional, hey, we're just another service providing news articles, click through, be done, and you'll never remember us.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which of the, the top of funnel channels um, have been the strongest for you guys in terms of, um, I guess both volume or proportion of the audience that they drive, um, but also in terms of quality of, of audience member, you know, highest likelihood to convert to the newsletter, to read the newsletter every day, etc. Is it, I guess, looking at the social media side first, maybe is it very driven by Twitter because your audience tends to be these kind of, you know, politicos and, and business, um, you know, tech people, et cetera, who spend a lot of time on Twitter and engage with news there.
1: I would say Twitter was a big one in the early days, Mm -hmm. whereas like when you're launching and you're announcing yourself and kind of the you know the industry professionals for business, politics, that world, they found out that way and that'll convert. But it's ultimately just a smaller ecosystem where it'll get kind of saturated uh pretty soon enough so i think probably google is our um like google search is probably our continuing best opportunity Mm -hmm. for bringing in and converting readers because obviously the scale of google and also like i mentioned that that intent high intent versus low intent uh if someone is searching about a news topic that is a pretty good indication that they're interested in it. They want to learn more. Uh, How much more do they want to learn enough to want to subscribe to a newsletter? Maybe, maybe not. But they're at least kind of expressing that level of, hey, this Ukraine invasion, like what's going on? Need to learn more. What's all the context I need to know? Whereas kind of more Mm -hmm. feed-based platforms is more like, hey, I'm watching a viral video. Here's a, like a, Engagement announcement. Here's a baby video, uh, yeah. baby photo. Oh, here's a news headline that just happens to be in my uh, track of attention. I'll click on that. So there's less intent uh, given to that. So that we see higher bounce rates from feed-based platforms compared to like a Google. So we do want to try to like harness the readers that say, "Hey, I care about these news topics. I like want to know what's going on in the world." And so they, they were probably more highly disposed to be able to convert them.
0: Yeah. How do you think about SEO as an editorial site where you're not, um, you know, you're, the content that you're putting out is your product. It's important that it, it's a certain high quality. You're not filling it with specific search keywords or, you know, 10 things you have to know about this. Like, And obviously some of the search algorithms have, have evolved over time away from some of the more clickbaity or or gimmicky approaches to SEO. Um, But how do you, how do you optimize, um, you know, it's kind of this intersection of the business and editorial goals of the team, um, you know, so that Axios articles have, uh, you know, turn up more at the top of search results. Yeah. Uh,
1: Probably the, the anchoring like fundamental fact is like, we're not incentivized to like write stuff that wouldn't be fulfilling for a reader. So, you know, I think that's kind of one of the models that we're not traffic dependent as a news organization. Obviously newsletters are a big part of our business. And so once someone signs up, like I mentioned, we can be in their inbox every day and we're not needing to like shout and be dramatic and be sensational to try to get people to come in um so just at, a, at our core we're not incentivized kind of by those attention seeking principles just as a business to be able to survive that being said uh we want readership we want people to read our stories on the web be personally uh being responsible for that metric uh obviously need to figure out ways that we can like figure out how these platforms work and how we can uh, be able to draw readers in, but by anchoring just the fact that at at its core, as a business, we will like our one of our trademark phrases: "Why it matters." We won't write stories unless there's a clear "Why it matters," and so that means that any stories that we're writing has some intrinsic news value. It's impactful in the political world, or the business world, or the tech world, uh, and so if we start with that's the topic we're writing about we'll go from there and then we'll try to optimize for SEO. And yeah, like we'll, we'll be as like, try anything as it takes to like, what what can make this uh, article resonate on Google? What are 10 things you need to know about um, Biden's Supreme Court pick, Kintaji Brown Jackson. So, you know, we're, it, we're not too precious about like, oh, we wouldn't frame a headline that way or no, we wouldn't phrase it that way, but we do kind of start, at a point which is like, these are the core topics we cover and we're not going to stray outside of that. Yeah. But within those, we want to be able to reach every single news consumer we can. And like, yeah, it's going to take a different type of headline on a social feed versus ranking on Google um, versus kind of a news aggregator platform as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I, as a quick tangent, I, you know, Axios has... Um, I forget how many podcasts. Um, I think I know of at least two. Um, but I, I'm curious how those fit into the playbook here. I know a lot of news organizations or different types of publishers have felt challenged with the idea of launching a podcast because it's not clear to them that the audience for a podcast ends up converting over to being on the site or going to their newsletters or subscribing to their subscription product. Um, do you view that as part of a like there are people who discover the podcast, listen to the podcast, and you're specifically through the podcast trying to push them over to visit the site or you know subscribe to a newsletter, or is it more of a retention, community building function for people who are already um, frequent readers of of Axios content?
1: More of the latter. For what you describe, we're not mm-hmm. trying to like the podcast is a daily product with advertising and revenue that comes out of it. So we if we can get a loyal Axios reader, who is like my morning routine involves kind of like bopping around the kitchen and listening to a podcast for 10 minutes while I do that, like we want to be able to get them as a reader. Uh, Some people are newsletter people. Some people are podcast people. Some people are Twitter people. So for every kind of brand of news consumer, we want to have some way to reach you through that routine. Uh, Before I came to Axios, I was not at all a uh newsletter person as like makes sense because i did a podcast i was a huge audio huge podcast listener that's how i got information and so that's my behavior and that's how i'm used to it so we want to be able to get a sense of um like the different genres of news consumer and not have newsletters be too much uh of a one size fits all um
0: so yeah yeah I I'm curious your your sense of why the newsletters have been so successful. Though I mean, you know, from kind of what I've heard on the outside, they monetize very well with with sponsors. Um, you know, they're targeting um, kind of engaged, uh, in a lot of cases, business audiences who are very valuable. Um, I think one of the things that's notable about them is they very rarely are trying to uh, kind of push you. Um, to some other uh, kind of Axios content or trying to you know link you to articles elsewhere. It's really the the newsletter feels like the end destination. And it's like, yeah, you just consume it and then look forward to the next one. Yeah, uh, Axios
1: is very intentionally built around that. Uh, say you're any old like site that is like, oh, newsletters are big, we need to have a newsletter. Well, you probably are building those in a way like, okay, well, how can we actually support our revenue goals, which is getting people to the site? So you'll use the newsletter as kind of a place where you can put your best stories and have people click through to read them on their site. That's not how we're thinking about it. We're thinking about it very much uh, product natively. You're in the newsletter. um, like That is the full experience. We want every story in there to be self-contained. Um, like sometimes it'll just be a little too long for a newsletter and we'll, you know, include a link to read the full thing on the site. Uh, but at its core, we see newsletters as a, like a full news consumer experience in itself, not just a vehicle to get people to move, uh, to a different platform. So I I think that's why we've had a lot of success, uh, and certainly Substack has, um, like Seen success in that same format as well, whereas the newsletter is the delivery vehicle, and kind of that's where you can uh, build an audience. Doing that, and like we're able to monetize and have sponsorships for our newsletters, um, so that has been a pretty big part of our business. But uh, you raise the question of like kind of why email? Like I don't think of email as the most um, intuitive place to kind of be able to reach readers, but. I think certainly when you have an audience of industry professionals, the inbox is such valuable real estate that if you can be there where people's eyes are already going to be to catch up on work stuff from the previous night and all other sorts of personal stuff in their life, uh, if you can be within eyesight of all those other items coming in, uh, that's just a hugely influential place to be. And you're not going to remember to visit the homepage of some website every day but you are going to remember to open your inbox because that's uh, how most people are operating on their lives.
0: Yeah. I think in particular for a business person with a business newsletters, it becomes part of your workflow, right? Of of like starting to get going with work for the day. Um, You know, I, um, since Axios launched and even before when, when Dan Primick was at Fortune, you know, it's like at at around 7.30 AM Pacific time, I know of like, yeah, you know, the newsletter will come in. It's going to be a rundown of different deals happening and a great way to just get up to speed on what's happening across kind of venture capital, private equity deal making. Um, and it just becomes part of your routine, right? Like a, you know, like a five minute uh, meeting that's on your calendar every morning.
1: Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, I'm fairly young, so I can't say this for certain, but there's probably like an era where there was your work email and your personal email uh, and separate inboxes. And I just feel that more and more of those inboxes are combining or kind of combining them on your di- devices, integrating them where personal emails and, uh, professional life, um, you know, it's all in the same space and there's not much of a distinction, um, for many professionals.
0: Yeah. Um, let's talk about paid acquisition. You guys do do some paid acquisition, um, yeah, advertising, how do you use it? What's the strategy there? Are there certain types of um, types of readers that you feel are harder to reach organically but are, are successful when you can reach them um, through ads? Or is it mostly about retargeting people who um, have engaged with Axios in some way but didn't convert to subscribing to a newsletter or now that you have a paid product didn't convert to the paid product?
1: Yeah, so the, we have our kind of core readership and when we're announcing announcing new products, new newsletters, um, we feel like our core readership will be obviously the easiest to reach and easiest to market to. Um, and then as we as you kind of expand uh, into like concentric circles of people that are harder and harder to reach, you might have people that have visited our site, but not our newsletter, or someone who has signed up for one of our lists, but not many others. Uh, so you have people that have kind of, come to the site or express some sort of like industry interest or preference. Um, So that is kind of a lot of how we're thinking about paid acquisition is like, is there some demonstrated interest there um, to be able to reach you? Um, And obviously just testing on different platforms. Um, I know that Facebook has just made it a lot more difficult in recent years to be able to target people based on different stated characteristics. Um, So that has become obviously more expensive uh, as an acquisition channel than it used to be, but probably still one of the more uh, effective ones. Um, So we're still always kind of looking at that equation of what's the customer acquisition cost to make them become a subscriber? What is the lifetime value of a subscriber that is reading Axios newsletters until the sun burns out? And um, how can we attract an engaged subscriber? We don't want to just get someone who signs up, realizes they don't actually want this at all, and unsubscribes uh, a few weeks later and is not giving us much value uh, for months and years to come.
0: On the product side, have there been specific um, product changes? either at Axios or on the major social platforms that created a big shift um, in terms of either more audience or higher conversion?
1: Yeah, so one of the big changes we've seen in recent years is Facebook, which obviously a big uh, source of readership for our news organizations and many other news organizations uh, has gone from kind of the news feed. That's how you get news is an article like exciting enough that someone shared it and it appeared on your feed from that sort of referral behavior to Facebook now has its news tab, which is its more curated um, format for news to be more similar to like Apple News, where it's less about what are your friends deciding uh, is a story that needs to appear on your feed and what are kind of editors and news professionals deciding um, should appear there. So Um, We, Axios has seen just kind of the migration of social media traffic. Um, It's, you know, everyone understands social media traffic as, oh, it appeared on my timeline, which is based on the people that I follow and is influenced by what gets retweeted or shared. And that will affect what I see uh, in my feed and end up clicking on. So we're, we're migrating from that paradigm of news to one where, you're leveraging the reach and scale of these massive platforms, but doing it in a more uh, guarded, um, walled way where you're trying to ensure, hey, this is reputable news. These are the stories we think are actually healthy. And that's, I think, just a major response from these platforms to trying to fight fake news, trying to fight um, non-reputable news sources, and just trying to improve the level of uh, the quality of discourse and news that, that people are seeing in their feeds.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's the strategy on social media for Axios in terms of community building and, and trying to create more engagement around content there? On one hand, it, it seems, um, uh, very personality driven in that Axios's newsletter writers tend to be, um, and, and reporters more broadly tend to be very active on Twitter and kind of have communities that they're engaging there. Um, Yeah, how do you think about the engagement strategy?
1: Yeah, so uh, like one thing that we always are thinking about on our Twitter feed and for our Instagram as well is like Axios is ultimately a nameless, faceless brand and people engage with other people. And so we want to put that like front and center as much as possible. Um, every Axios newsletter comes from like a real person and has their name on it and appears in their inbox uh, from their name. And like, readers like that. They like being able to connect with uh, other people and not just like a big corporate face that sends you newsletters each day. So we try as much as possible to um, translate that to our social feeds as well. So we will retweet reporters. Anytime uh, they're pushing out their stories, if they have like a big newsletter package uh, that's really in depth on a certain topic, we'll push that out. New hires that are excited to join Axios and like have a newsletter they want to point new readers towards, we'll push that as well. So we're we're trying to make it engaging. We're trying to um, like put our people and our experts and our authors on these topics yeah. uh, front and center and. That also like, extends to Instagram. We, If any of our reporters is somewhere cool, we want them to just take a video and send it to us and kind of we'll post it. Um, so as much as possible, we want readers and uh, social media followers to get to know the people behind Axios.
0: Yeah. Do you use any um, social group products in terms of Facebook groups? Or I know a number of subscription publishers have experimented with using Slack or Discord groups. Any use of those types of platforms?
1: We've experimented. Um, so, like we've done, like we had a, we tried a Facebook group. We'll do Reddit AMAs, um, Twitter Spaces, whatever kind of new product idea is out there from one of the platforms, we'll give it a try. Uh, but ultimately, we found like we have kind of a built-in community, and that's like newsletter subscribers. Uh, every newsletter that goes out, we can ask questions to the audience, we can pose that to them. And we field a bunch of email replies, Um, like, especially for our Axios local newsletters in different cities, like, hey, what do you think of this decision where it becomes like really personal and affects people's lives. And you can like, really almost reach out and touch uh, the reporter, the back and forth that email allows, like, It's not the perfect medium, but it's also just baked in and uh, built into our product as is that, you know, rather than kind of taking that audience and porting it over to a different platform, like why not just kind of engage um, where they already are?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it, it again ties to the personality driven nature of Axios content, right? And Axios has staked a claim, um, kind of at the at an end of the spectrum here, that is very scary to most media companies, which is where you know, your writers are very much like the name that people follow, the person people feel like um, is the one creating their content and who they have a relationship with. And for media companies that you know, that's scary because that, it's, you know, does that, is that audience loyal to the brand or loyal to that one person and you know, what walking power, does it give to that person to walk away with the audience and start their own company or go to a competing site? Um, And so a lot of brands have struggled with how to kind of empower specific um, writers and put them front and center and help them build their brand um, because of that fear. And Axios, just from the beginning, specifically recruited people who had big names in their space in particular already around newsletters, um, but has leaned into that only more.
1: Yeah, like obviously Substack has like fully gone into that model as well. And we're like hyper aware that any of our newsletter authors could just pick up one day and be like, I'll go it alone and I'll do my own thing. Uh, I think what Axios wants to do is make the newsroom experience just something that can't be replaced elsewhere. Like going out on your own means you can't, be able to collaborate with like our space reporter Miriam or our um, tech correspondent Ina Freed or Sarah Fisher with media, just the access to people who are brilliant on their topic because like pretty much no matter what story is in the news, it will have some like collision with another topic. Um, and you can't just kind of be too siloed, um, within your own beat and not be aware of the ramifications elsewhere. So like, it's like our hope and what we're like trying to build is that, uh, that newsroom experience with collaboration and trying different products and going onto different platforms is kind of something that provides more appeal than a sub stack.
0: Yeah. Yeah. On the point of, of kind of high engagement, um, newsletter audience I'm curious to what extent do you guys call your newsletters of people with very low open rates in order to you know keep it as kind of high open rates and by and large only the actual highly engaged audience
1: yeah we do those we do that regularly ultimately just kind of the vanity of having high subscriber numbers if they don't open or if they don't read it really doesn't mean much for us we want to kind of ourselves as a brand forward as um, one that like readers are really engaged with and care about. And we're not like, yeah, we like to have a ton of readers. We want to get as many of them as possible, but we're not built on the principle of scale and trying to get as many raw eyeballs as possible. We want the right ones and the folks that are engaging. So if, you know, people sign up and they never open uh, our newsletters, we will regularly churn them from our list to make sure that we have a healthy list and keep that open right up.
0: Talk more about what a healthy list means and and why it matters to remove those people. Is that that internally about just having a clearer, clearer sense of how readers are engaging and removing some of the people who never engage so your data is clear as as a feedback source? Is that driven by, of advertising and sponsorship sales and and you being able to generate more money by having higher open rates because it shows more engagement from the audience. What's, what are the drivers behind bothering to do that?
1: Yeah, I think a few of those, uh, all apply is like we want to be able to have a conversation with advertisers and be pretty transparent about who our audience is and what they like and what they respond to. And it's hard to do that when you just have a really, uh, Bulky uh, list of like millions of subscribers who you have you got their email congratulations you did it like you can send them your products and like be on their way but is not indicative of like who among those actually interacts and engages with the brand so it becomes a lot less helpful to see like signs in the data and indicators in the data if you just have um, so many people who just like aren't interested in the brand and are just being used kind of for a vanity metric. So uh, it's, uh, we think about health as far as just like understanding our readership. Um, Like we wanna, if there were all things equal, we have our say 100,000 subscribers to a newsletter and it starts to go south and our open rate goes from 45% to 30%. We wanna be able to understand that signal and react to it and realize how can we make our product more engaging is it the news? Is it kind of any anything else that is about that newsletter that is affecting the engagement? And it's just harder to do that if you have um, all the like massive clutter that's not giving you meaningful information or data um, on your lists.
0: Yeah, um, I, I'm curious. By the way, as far as meaningful information and, and the analytics you have, um, are there specific uh, software tools, analytic? Platforms uh, that you guys really trust and, and kind of find most valuable?
1: Yeah, so we have a few. I don't think any of them are uh, unlike any other media company uses. We use through for mm-hmm. all of our um, emails, both editorial uh, newsletters that go out, alerts, email alerts that get sent, as well as our marketing emails. Um, for our site, we use. Parsley for web analytics, as well as Google analytics, and obviously for our app and for our podcast, there are also specific vendors for each of those as well, but probably sail through Parsley are the main ones as far as um, understanding how we reach most of our readers and try to incorporate that feedback and relay insights back to the newsroom.
0: Yeah, gotcha. Um, So, Part of, I guess, there've been two big expansions at Axios um, in the last year, which you know is the expansion into local news and launching newsletters in uh, a number of cities across the United States, and the other one being the launch of the um, kind of premium paid products um, uh, around different business verticals. Starting on the local strategy there. Um, in what ways are launching those newsletters and building the audience around them different from the existing newsletters that were very national or even international in terms of the scope of the audience and who you're going after. Yeah. If it's a, um, I'm forgetting the exact cities you guys are already in, but if it's a Charlotte or a Cincinnati newsletter, right? It's, it's a very different type of audience you're targeting. It's by geography.
1: Yeah, I mean, so like all of the main like kind of Axios national newsletters are pretty much centered around uh, an industry or a major news topic where, you know, if we're writing, if we have a energy newsletter, there is a population of people who work at energy companies and energy lobbyists and energy legislators where it's an essential newsletter for them. And you can kind of build an audience around finding who those people are. Uh, For local, it's a completely different equation because it's just about geography. Um, Obviously, kind of professionals uh, tend to be like the kind of type of profile that we look at because they tend to be newsletter readers. They tend to operate in their inbox, like we talked about earlier. But as far as identifying and acquiring them, a lot of those readers are not already existing Axios readers. And we've kind of seen that in our data that there's not a huge overlap between uh, local and national. So that is really kind of tapping into just a type of audience that is pretty unfamiliar to us. Whereas rather than kind of being able to adjust from industry to industry or topic to topic from business to technology to politics, instead we're just looking geographically, like in this city, what are kind of the animating uh, topics or headlines that will get someone to be interested in an acquisition ad if, if kind of we're running that. Um, so it's uh, I, th- I think we're thinking about it kind of a little differently.
0: Yeah. Gotcha. Um, on the um, on the paid side. So I'm, I'm curious the update. I know it's only a few weeks in, but how um, how the launch of those premium newsletters is going and where the growth is coming from? Is it mostly people who were subscribers to the free newsletters who you've been able to drive over um, to industry specific premium products? Or have you found that actually the audience for those is is a new audience coming from elsewhere?
1: I don't have a lot of data to share around the new pro newsletters, but it was very intentional that, kind of we launched our pro deals newsletters, um, kind of in synchronicity with Dan Primack's newsletter, Pro Rata. Obviously he has the big audience of kind of deals and deal makers across many different industries. And so he is kind of the main top of funnel vehicle um, for driving people to our industry specific newsletters, retail, um, media deals, like you mentioned, fintech, um, healthcare. So um, you know, that's really kind of that primary audience that we're tapping into, who are the existing audience subscribers, not too dissimilar from any time we launch another product, like where is the core Axios reader among kind of who we already have that can convert to that product. And so in that same way, um, Dan Primack's audience was kind of an obvious um, kind of initial uh, found to tap into.
0: Yeah, makes sense. And, and obviously keeps the the CAC very low because of the um, the kind of built-in audience you already have to, to cross-promote with. Right. Yeah. Um, when, by the way, does the, the Media Deals newsletter launch? I know it's we've been waiting for it. It's coming soon.
1: Yeah, no, there's a lot of excitement around it. Um, I, I want to say it's in the next two weeks, possibly three weeks, but that will be authored by Carrie Flynn, uh, who's coming over from CNN, as well as Tim Basinger. Um, so they are going to helm that team, and they will also um, have contributions from Sarah Fisher and Dan Primack as well.
0: Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about um, the the coverage from that, given the listeners here are all very relevant um, to that newsletter. Is it specific to um, to deal-making and kind of business updates within more of the realm of of News media publishing, TV that side, or is it also bridging into the kind of film and entertainment, gaming, the the broader media and entertainment industry?
1: We're going to try to uh, have all of all of it uh, as much as possible. Um, obviously, kind of Sarah Fisher's uh, Media Trends newsletter tries to cover uh, as much of that universe as possible, from digital media to television to startups. Um, We have kind of on that team, Tim Basinger is coming from I believe The Wrap, where he you know, it's more of a Hollywood West Coast centric focus, Uh, Carrie Flynn, and more East Coast digital media. So we are going to try to cover the whole universe of media.
0: Amazing. Well, I'm excited for it. And Neil, thanks for taking the time today. This was a, a very interesting conversation.
1: Thank you so much for
0: having me, Eric. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you found our conversation insightful, please share it with friends and give it a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. Keep up with future episodes and get curated links to other resources by signing up for the free monetizing media newsletter at monetizingmedia.com. Which executives do you want to hear from in the next episode? Send your recommendations to me on Twitter or email me at eric@monetizingmedia.com.